0: I'm Nick Harcourt, and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. If, like me, you've been an avid consumer of television news for the past couple of decades, then you've probably seen our guest on a screen in your home. Soledad O'Brien is a broadcast journalist, producer, and author whose career has taken her from her first gig as a radio reporter in Boston onto NBC in New York as a field producer for The Nightly News and Weekend Today. She had a brief stint at NBC in San Francisco. And then back to New York with the then new news outlet, MSNBC, where she anchored the Weekend Morning Show, followed by a gig as the co-anchor of NBC's Weekend Today. Next up, Soledad moved to CNN, where she spent a decade, first up, anchoring their flagship program, American Morning, and holding down a number of other slots before founding her own starfish media group in 2013, producing documentaries dedicated to uncovering and producing empowering untold stories that take a challenging look at often devised of issues of race, class, wealth, opportunity, poverty, and personal stories. She's also worked with PBS, Al Jazeera America, and Hearst Television, and jumped into the podcasting world earlier this year with financial journalist Jean Chatsky covering personal finance on the show Everyday Wealth. Oh, and she's got a whole heap of awards, including a couple of Emmys. Soledad, welcome. I'm a fan of your work, and it's terrific to meet you.
1: Thank you, and likewise, and wow, I feel I'm exhausted by that intro. I hear that and it's like, oof! I'm a, I'm a I'm a girl who has like 10 different jobs. Like you listed seven of them right there. Uh, yeah, it's been interesting, isn't it? How much media has changed from when, well, the 1980s, when I got into the business to today, where you actually can juggle a bunch of different platforms. And I think you almost have to, frankly, mm. as a journalist, I think you have to be, you know, have your fingers in a number of different platforms to be able to be successful.
0: We're going to talk music shortly, but before we do, maybe we can take a quick look at the state of the journalism union, so to speak. Last year, you spoke during a House subcommittee hearing on disinformation and extremism in the media calling out reports on Fox News in particular, as well as MSNBC. And as we've seen, many of our news sources devolve into attention-grabbing headlines and clickbait over the last decade or so, uh, running parallel with the polarization of American politics. Where are we and where do you see us heading?
1: Nowhere good, and I think nowhere good. Um, I'm really dismayed by uh, just how, how much damage has been wrought upon local news which I think sometimes people shrug their shoulders, but of course, local news is where it all begins, where you get information about what's happening in your school board, what's happening in your town, where people are held accountable for, you know, spending public dollars, sometimes at the very lowest levels, certainly in government bureaucracy, but that's where it begins. And since we've seen a decimation of local media, you know, it follows up the chain. What I think a lot of media outlets are trying to do now is figure out how to compete with social media right how do they actually get engagement eyeballs and that's why i think we're seeing um, in sort of the bigger platforms uh, whether it's broadcast or cable or print over the top salacious crazy kind of headlines sometimes headlines that are absolutely literally saying the opposite of what the article comes to the conclusion of yeah. because their their competitor isn't print or another print platform right their competitor is social media it's tiktok it's instagram it's twitter And so I think that, you know, that is not good because I think those platforms are have a very different standard. And you're seeing a whittling down of um, of quality. Uh, A good example of late has been when um, I'm going to might get his name is again, Glenn Kessler, the fact checker from The Washington Post wrote an article about this uh, really critiquing a reporter from the Indy Star who wrote about a 10 year old girl who has just left uh, had to leave the state to get an abortion. And in so many ways, it's an infuriating article. I've now read it several times and he's the fact checker. Right. So he's he basically says ends it with, you know, if there were you know, if they if they had a rapist, you know, this would be more likely to think that this was true. But of course, you know, then they arrested a guy. And so you could see all of his hemming and hawing and not wanting to assume that something was true. He called the doctor an activist and talked about how these cases are so rare. These are all the reasons that it was most likely a lie. And and you're like, you know, here's a person who clearly as a journalist has never covered rape. We all know it's way underreported, ridiculously underreported if you're talking about small children. And this girl was, you know, and that's the guy who's not doing it for the clicks. He's just, oh, he ended up. T- tweeting that he doesn't read the comments, so don't bother sending <laughs> them. But I mean, that's where we are, right? Like the, the Washington yeah. Post fact checker makes a major error. He's just wrong. A lot of his information is wrong. What he's building his case on is completely wrong. And he's not really well read or well researched in it. But when people push back, it's don't bother because I don't read the comments. I mean, that's where we are. And I think yeah. that is a very bad place.
0: You know, I follow you on on Twitter. And you kind of preempted my next question there, but I think we can still follow through with it. One of the things you do with your social media is you call out news sources and publications in particular for, I guess, what is essentially lazy journalism in their headlines. And you just mentioned this one uh, in particular. Why is it so important that the headlines that are put out there reflect what's in the story?
1: thing I've noticed in journalism that we try very hard to not do at our show, matter of fact, is um, it's almost like decentering human beings, right? Like all of this is written as if there's not an actual 10-year-old person, human being at the center of the story, or that policy is about a game between congressmen who are fighting with each other. But at the end of the day, it's not about a group of people who actually will benefit or get completely screwed over by a certain policy. And and I've really noticed that, and, and that's what I think that at work, right, is this, I find it so infuriating because it's, it's sort of framed always as this, this game of which, you know, no actual people ever walk through. And we know that, you know, we do our show, we think about our show as actually it's about people and it centers human beings and it centers who they are and what's happening to them. And actually the lawmakers in some ways are the peripheral characters. I mean, obviously they're helping make the laws, but but it's the human beings at the center that we wanna focus on. And so it's just a, our, our take is a very different strategy, a very different tact that we take. So I get so mad because I think people need to understand what they're seeing. I try to do a lot of explaining of framing. Like, so whose who's take is Glenn parroting here? Why would Glenn, Tesla over the Washington Post, basically attack a a perfectly solid journalist at the Indy Star, which is a perfectly solid publication, right? It's not a uh, it's not some rag paper that, you know, has a history of making stuff up. You know, why would Glenn frame a doctor, a medical doctor, who is, is, you know, is, has no reputation as, a, a, as an activist in any way, shape or form that you might think about that label? Uh, why is she being framed as an activist? Why does Glenn think that the reported 52 cases of children, small children getting pregnant, he calls that a very small number? That seems like a lot to me, actually. But, you know, it's once a week, once a week, that's a child a week. Uh, that seems like a lot. Since it's underreported, I'm going to guess probably way more than that, actually, right?
0: Probably 10 times that many, yeah.
1: I'd love to understand, like, why someone does what they do and why the framing is what it is. And I think other people deserve to understand how the news media works in that regard.
0: It all comes down to accountability, doesn't it, at the end of the day? And accountability seems to be lacking in just about every facet of public discourse at this moment in time.
1: I think there's, it just doesn't matter right? You had a number of reporters who talked about how the January 6th commission was already before it began a waste of time. Um, Well, you know, it turns out they're wrong. If you look at polling of what people think about it, if you just watch it and see what's unfolding, it's fascinating, frankly, you know, but, but somehow they were able to, They are literally paid money to go and just make stuff up. And they're just absolutely wrong. And there'll be no accountability. No one will care that Chris Eliza is wrong yet again, that David Brooks is wrong yet again, that Kathleen Parker is wrong yet again. It just won't matter. It won't impact their paycheck. It won't impact their ability to have a job or do their job. It's just, oops. So why are they informing the public of anything? You know, that's, I guess, I, I, I guess I'm just very annoyed and frustrated. And I try to point that out to people consistently.
0: Well, and understandably so, if you're a, a truth seeker, which uh, from my understanding of a, a dad who was a, a, a journalist, a print journalist many years ago, that's part of the gig, isn't
1: it? I think it's for me, you know, understanding what's at work and explaining to people how it works. I mean I've always tried to, you know, truth is a very weird word at times, right? People talk about my truth. I have my truth. And then there's mm. your truth and there there's the truth. And I'm interested in certainly for what we do on air, you know, how do we help the audience understand what's unfolding? Understand the bill, understand the policy, understand what's happening in the data. Like that's what I really try to focus on. So why would I ever say you know, the January 6th commission is going to be useless when who knows? Nothing. We haven't seen it yet. It hasn't actually happened at the time people were saying that. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I resent. And yes, I think I think you want people to be informed by intelligent people who, when they make a mistake, say, you know, wow, I got it wrong. But but they they had an informed thought process, not one where they just need to make headlines and and have something that's going to be you know retweeted and repeated because it's kind of over the top and salacious.
0: Understood. I, I mentioned in our in our intro uh, that you have a podcast that covers personal finance. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the motivation behind that.
1: Sure. It's called Everyday Wealth. And I do that podcast with my friend, Gene Chasky. One of us is a well-regarded financial journalist. <laughs> and the other one asks sometimes stupid questions about money and investing and trying to understand what's happening in the market. And it's it's been a lot of fun to do. She and I have worked together literally for 20 something years. Um, but I she's just really smart about understanding the markets. And I think I'm smart in the way that when you have your own money invested, you're like, oh, no, I'm really smart. because it's my own money. So I'm going to ask every stupid question because mm-hmm. this is important to me and I want to understand how to be better at investing and even just How to think about, you know, recession, how to think about inflation, how to think about where money should be. It's been so much fun. And I have always appreciated with a really smart co-anchor who really knows stuff. I don't have to go out and get my PhD in personal finance. I, I get.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: I've always thought about, I think what I bring to that show and what I've always thought about when it came to finance. And I do some, I do a fair amount of investing, but I've also started doing real estate investing, which is, I found fascinating. Interesting. But what I've always appreciated is, um, you know, that like I look at financial success as do you hit the goals? You know, it's not a number in a bank account. Like, oh, if I get to $5 million and that it's like, yeah, but is your life happy? Are you do you feel like you're in a position to, to do what you want to? And, and, you know, is, is it all the, are all the pieces together? Are you living on airplanes and eating, you know, crappy food all day in order to hit that number? Or are you feeling like you have a balanced life where you get to hang out with your family? So that's kind of what like to talk about on our show, you know, what makes a successful, you know, what what your your personal finance environment, like what makes that work? What is success for you? Um, because it's different for everybody. But for me, and I think for most people, it's, it's not a number. It might be at one moment you think like, oh, if I could just, I remember I used to think when I started working in TV news, it's like, if I could just get paid $11,000 a year. Sure. I would be so happy. And, you know, and of course it doesn't work like that. You know, you you begin to think about, you know, well, what projects do I work on? What things do I get to do? What people do I get to work with? It starts getting a little more nuanced.
0: I read that uh, earlier on this year, 2022, when we're recording this, that you partnered with JP Morgan to advise and give a lecture at the company's financial health education, wealth building, and financial inclusion for Black and Hispanic communities. Can you tell us a little bit a, a bit more about that? The company that I, I work with, Spark Network, are actually actively involved in working towards financial equity for minority communities. And I've had a few conversations with folks uh, in the last year or two who are working to try and give an on-ramp to investing for these communities?
1: Yeah, it's really important. I I sit on the advisory board for Advancing Black Pathways, which is sort of this um, volunteer group of people who get together and try to figure out how do you actually change the financial picture for African-Americans? Because we know, and it's dire, uh, the wealth gap between Black people and white people and Latinos is horrific and and growing bigger every day. And so um, that conversation we did was about entrepreneurship which was really, really, really uh, fun because we got to talk about, you know, to young people, mostly young people. There are some people who are a little bit older in the group, but just, I'd say average age of about 27, 28, who were, you know, navigating trying to launch a business. And we know minorities over index in being small business owners. But as a person who runs a small business, there's lots to learn. There's lots to know. There's lots of mistakes to make and hopefully to avoid. Uh, So it was really fun because we got to talk a lot about, you know, something that I've just been doing for the last 10 years now, almost our company is about 10 years old. And I, I went from, you know, breeding off a teleprompter as an anchor lady to, you know, most of my day is spent running a business and I had never taken a, an accounting class in my life. And I was very overwhelmed by like, what does it mean to be the CEO? What does it actually mean to Run a budget. What does that actually mean to project out where you'll be in five years, and how do you do that? How do you figure out how to get office space when you you have one employee and you're working out of your kitchen? You know, those are all very real challenges if you're an entrepreneur, and good challenges, right? I mean, it's all positive. It means it's going the right direction, but stressful nonetheless.
0: Once you sort of get to the point where you are running your own business, then there are a whole other set of uh, implications for the financial decisions that you that you make. Um, But what do you think about financial literacy education, not just for people of color or minorities, but for anybody? Most people seem to come out of school and they don't teach them anything about how to even open a bank account, let alone get. Yeah.
1: And when I was in school, they at least I think I think we did learn like, here's how to open a bank. Here's how to get a a savings account, you know, which is not even very valuable, frankly. I, I think people have abdicated that to the parents. And I think in many cases. You know, parents we know are heavily in debt and don't have a lot of financial education themselves. And the way certainly America works is, I always thought about this was when I became kind of successful as a TV anchor. um, I I used to go to the National Association of Black Journalists Conferences. I go with my best friend, who's an executive producer. And by the time that you know, that we could afford to go, people were flying us in because now we had expertise, right? We were going to be on a panel. We were going to moderate a conversation (laughs) when you really needed to go. Yeah. You you know, you certainly couldn't afford to go for three days and stay in a hotel room. You know, you were living on a little tight little budget. Yeah. So we're always laughing like "This this is the craziness about this. Like the people who really need to be here are the young people who are trying to figure it out um and not you know and we're being comped left and right for everything because we're speaking on panels and that's kind of how it works in the financial uh, industry in america right you know if you have money it's much easier to make money it's much easier to save money at every turn if you don't have money i promise you at every turn you're going to be paying you know some exorbitant fee and if you're 10 seconds late with your payment you're going to pay another exorbitant fee and so we don't you know, when you factor that in with people not really having a tremendous education around finance and, and all this, the debts that people have, certainly around school debt, it's just, you know, it's just a recipe for disaster. So, yeah, I think you do have to figure out, I mean, that's part of what this conversation was about, was helping entrepreneurs. And, and I like what JP Morgan and others are doing this as well, which is helping them get access to capital. And if you're not going to give them access to capital, very quickly say to them, you're not going to get it. And here's what we need to see before we give it to you. You know, because if you're a small business, it's not like you have three guys in your finance department who can spend the next six weeks running numbers and pulling that information together, right? Usually it's you or you and one other person. And so, you know, we've been working very hard on, on giving feedback around what small business owners need is capital. But if they're not going to get capital right away, they need feedback and they need it fast. And they yeah. need it in a way that's not going to, you know, have them fill out 5 million forms when you're running a small business. I mean, this used to happen to us. Like at some point you say, this, this thing is so onerous. It's just not worth doing because we don't have the bodies when you're a a brand new small company. So I have appreciated all the attention to those kind of details. Like all of that goes to helping people who are trying to either get capital, raise capital for their business, or trying to figure out how to, how to navigate, you know, their kids' education better. And, you know, thinking about like what kind of loans to take on and how to take them on and, and and where to send their kid to school. You know, I mean, a lot of people just don't really know any of that. So it is around education. It is around getting people to not make big financial mistakes first. And I, I wish we taught people more on the front end than on the back end, frankly.
0: Do, do financial institutions have a, a, a role to play in this? I mean, in the absence of political leadership, Uh, Not just in finances, but in different facets of just the way we live our lives today.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think what we're seeing now is financial institutions and, and listen, and companies generally. I mean, I've had many conversations with people who recognize like the company is based in a community and they're hiring people from the community, you know, and so if your public schools are terrible, well, guess where you're getting your employees from? they're that's where they're coming out of you know it's not like you you have no interaction with the people around you your business is centered in some kind of a community don't you want to invest in that community as well and so i've definitely seen that jp morgan is one organization but almost every organization i work with i think they've really come to the realization of uh, investing in people to make sure that they're building a better workforce for themselves selfishly down the road yeah you know Twenty years later, I, I think that's a I think that's a good thing. I think it's a way to think about you know every part of the country is valuable and important and 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 worth investing in.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We're definitely seeing I think uh, corporations beginning to understand that the uh, the country, the whole country, is a marketplace, and they want to sell their stuff to everybody.
1: Yeah, listen, you know, I, they talk a lot about um, Ford Motor Company, right? And when Mr. Ford started building the Model T, you know, he priced it in a way that his workers could afford it because he recognized that instead of just building one fancy car, that that there was a bigger market full of people, you know, but you had to then pay them well, like that there was a value to him in paying his people well because they would turn around and, and buy his product, uh, you know, and that's, that's I think, a, a classic example of where people are beginning to understand uh, a, a, an organization that takes care of its employees, their health, their education, figuring out how to help them navigate stuff like, you know, their kids schooling, you know, that like that employee is a better, happier employee, which means and translates into less, you know, fewer problems for the employer down the road.
0: Let's get to the fun stuff.
1: <laughs>
0: now, I know that you grew up on Long Island, right? you And your, your dad is of uh australia is australian of irish descent your mom is afro-cuban from havana where did you grow up exactly and and what was your household household like as a kid
1: i grew up in st james long island new york and my household was was good i had five brothers and sisters so big family and you know pretty noisy and rambunctious but very my mom was very strict my mom and dad were both very strict and both educators so i think Strict, but also very focused on education.
0: I I read that all of your siblings, including yourself, graduated from Harvard. Is that right?
1: That is correct. So all it means is that we have just paid through the nose for Harvard for many, many, many years. Many.
0: But it also means that the, the focus that your parents put on education clearly paid off.
1: Yeah, I mean, but you know what's interesting? And my husband and I run a small foundation that sends girls to college. When you have parents who are educated and highly educated with multiple advanced degrees, they know how to navigate a system far better than if you have parents who, you know, have have no idea how to navigate uh, college. So for sure, my parents were very um, focused on education. They were well-educated. They held us very accountable to our schoolwork, et cetera, et cetera. But we also really benefited from having parents who understood kind of how you navigate high school to go off to college one day. And and that's a tremendous advantage.
0: What's your first musical memory?
1: Gosh, um, my very first musical memory, that's not like as a little, little kid, um, I would say was, you know, probably like in the 1970s, so I was probably eight years old or something. And it Mm -hmm. was, we would all dance in our, we had a big like hallway, walkway, so like a living room almost. And there was a song called Billy Don't Be a Hero that I loved and played on repeat all. And it was so sad. Like, I I think I was probably at eight or nine. I just, it was so emotional, right? Oh my God, Billy doesn't come back from the war, you know, as a little kid. Like, you know, it wasn't my music because I didn't have an allowance then. So I had no money. But my sisters, um, you know, had, uh, you know, my sister's music. And so I could listen to their music. My one of my sisters loved country music and she loved Charlie Pride around that time. And of Mm. course, Elton John was a huge, you know, a huge influence because they just loved Elton John. And and, um, so we listened to a lot of Elton John. But again, it wasn't like my musical influence. It was really my older siblings. And because they had little jobs or they had an allowance that they could actually buy records where, you know, I was too little to do that.
0: I remember that song. And as as you were talking, I was just looking it up very quickly because I couldn't remember the band who did it. But interestingly enough, uh, folks who choose to go take a look for this song, uh, when I grew up in England, it was done by a band called Paper Lace. And then in the U.S., it was covered by, and I've never heard of these guys, Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods. Uh, you talked about having having uh, siblings who who had allowances and and bought records obviously what was the first music you bought with your own money
1: oh my gosh well the first album that i got for christmas i think it was christmas or maybe my birthday was soft cell tainted love mm. and whenever it comes on the radio now I, I make my kids like oh my gosh i got this this was my first album that i ever was like gifted you know um by my parents. And then as I got older, um, we had a, a pretty big lawn and we had a lawn mower. And my dad would give you $16, which was just enough money to buy a CD at Sam Goody back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get $16, which meant you could mow the lawn and go and buy a, a CD. My first concert was Cindy Lauper, uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. So I think it was then I, I had friends who got to go like watch the police live in concert. but. You know, I, I, I never, my parents would never have gone for that. Like that was just never going to happen. Uh, so we could go to stuff that was a little bit closer and local.
0: Right. Well, did you end up going into the city though? Did you end up going into New York and seeing music?
1: I, I didn't go in to see music. I mean, live music, yes. Like Sounds of Brazil or go to live clubs or jazz clubs Um, you could do, certainly even when I was in high school, but not like concerts. You know, I would never went into Madison Square Garden. My parents would like, right. that That was never going to happen when I was in in high school. And by the time I started going into the garden, I was taking my kids and we were going to, we were going to see the Wiggles or something like that. Oh
0: my, I took my kids to see the Wiggles. Yeah,
1: big red car. Right? My first, I think one of my first or second dates with my husband, my now husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was to see Joan Armatrading, maybe at the Beacon Um, I think that's where we went, you know, which was amazing because she's amazing. She is. So, you know, I think my musical tastes were very varied and I was very easily influenced. Um, Like if someone loves something, then I'd be like, oh, let me listen to it. I I might love it as well. And then when I started working in news, I ended up doing a lot of events where I'd go to concerts all the time, but working at them, you know, like Mm. hosting something or emceeing something. So I went to a lot of gospel concerts. Oh my gosh, I love gospel And I went to, I mean, you know, I've seen Anita Baker five zillion times. My dream, of course, was to see Luther Vandross and interview him live on my show. And um, we never really were able to make that happen.
0: You're the second person I've spoken to literally in 24 hours. The other one being Ben Harper, who name-checked Anita Baker, which I find fascinating.
1: Yeah, she's amazing. She's amazing. And she's, you know, she just has, at her most recent concert series that she did in Vegas. I mean, like Wiz Khalifa was there. Like, everybody loves Anita Baker. There's not anybody who's like, yeah, not for me. Right. And they can have any sort of like, here's the list of stuff that they love. And then Anita Baker, you know. And Is on the list. He really can fit on a lot of playlists, actually. So um, I said to her, Anita, Wiz Khalifa's in the audience. <laughs> She's like, I know, I can't believe it. <laughs> Pretty funny.
0: What do you listen to when you want to dance?
1: I love anything like 1990s which by the way is really starting to come back in some capacity right so new edition any all like 90s uh mary j Th- that to me was like the best time for like dancing in your room with your hairbrush getting ready to go out and meet your girlfriend like that to me was a great to my like you know late college early work years when i was first working at nbc news
0: it's so funny, you know. I t- I talk to a lot of people, obviously, as you do, in in, in our jobs. And uh, when I talk to people about, about music, I I tend to find that most of the, the the women that I speak to talk about dancing with a hairbrush in in front of the mirror in in their you know bedrooms, whereas the guys talk about you know holding a a baseball bat or a a, a tennis racket or something and playing you know uh, air guitar. That's so funny. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I think it is. It is that that time where you feel like this is in my range right i mean what what i loved about whitney houston outside of the fact that she had an amazing voice was she was kind of in everybody's range right like you know you didn't you didn't have to hit that very very high note you could kind of do a middle range whitney houston and pull off mm. um you know uh the, the theme from the bodyguard and it could sound pretty good and you know so yeah those you know the 90s lady 80s and 90s were were pretty great i was not super into rap a little you know I'd say a little bit into rap but not in ways I, I grew up in Long Island I think there were some people who were really 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 into rap and and followed it very closely and I did not but when I when I went to college the guy who started the the rap magazine the source was a friend of mine in college and so you know he and I have stayed in and very much in touch actually o- over the years but he was in college like literally categorizing and tracking what was happening in rap in a way that nobody else was really doing.
0: Yeah. Fantastic magazine and very much uh, a, a big part of of helping to to break a lot of those early acts.
1: Right. Exactly. I mean, crazy if you think about it.
0: What do you listen to when you're feeling sad?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, I think a lot of like the Luther Vandross and he, I, I love a, a ballad. And again, I, I think I love a ballad that can you can sing along with. Mm hmm. You know, Anita Baker, of obviously these are ridiculously insanely talented lyricists and also just their the way they deliver the the song is phenomenal. But you know, if you're just sitting there, you know, trying to sing to yourself, like I love a good ballad, and I think Anita and I think Luther are like just great at ballads. They really always have been my my go to. My husband and I have very different musical tastes. So um, you know, he's very much into like Grateful Dead and you know, um, a lot of like A lot of what he listens to reminds me of college. Um, uh, Gosh, all those British bands. We were at college together in the late 1980s. So general public.
0: Oh, sure. General public and the English beat and uh, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, all of that. So he listened to a lot of that and a lot of Grateful Dead and then a lot of like REO Speedwagon and Alabama and the Eagles. I mean, he's just got a very like.
0: So he's a rock guy.
1: Yeah, definitely a rock guy. So I know all the lyrics, but I couldn't tell you the bands. I'm always like,
0: right, right, right.
1: I was never very into the Grateful Dead.
0: Yeah, me neither. You you know the old the old joke about the Grateful Dead, right? That what did the one pothead say to the other pothead when the when the weed ran out? What? This music sucks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's an old joke. (laughs) No, I
1: get that, but a good one.
0: (laughs) Do you have a favorite music video?
1: Oh, gosh, yes. Prince, Little Red Corvette that they played over and over on MTV. I was in high school then, so I must have been my senior year. And uh, I used to have to go to my friend Kim Mitchell's house because my parents would not let us watch TV uh, in the afternoon. And we would practice getting that dance that Prince does in the middle of Little Red Corvette.
0: Oh, my gosh, yes.
1: Which I, I certainly was never able to to figure that out and really nail it. But Yeah. <laughs> great. I think that was my favorite video, mostly because it just reminds me of a time more than being a particularly, you know, well-produced or or interesting video.
0: Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? And it doesn't necessarily have to be a new band or a new artist, just somebody who's new to you.
1: Mm, Yeah. You know who I've been listening to a lot lately because I mentioned that my husband and I have the scholarship program and One of our young scholars who's a grad has just started a job in New York City, so she's been crashing with us until she gets her own apartment. And she used to, um, she used to play in a band with Trombone Shorty. And so we listen to Trombone Shorty all the time now, which is, I mean, he's awesome. And I can't say, you know, I kind of knew of him because I spent a lot of time in New Orleans, but I, I wouldn't say that I knew of him and listened to him a lot. So it's been really fun to, through her, just listen to a lot of trombone shorties and it's like dance music. I mean, it's unbelievable. He's so good.
0: What band or artists do you love, but you think feel perhaps they never quite got the big break they deserve?
1: Mm, That's such a good question. Um, I loved listening to Patty Larkin, who was very much in the, when I was in college and after college and working in Boston, in the like Boston music scene, you know, she'd hold a concert outside somewhere so talented great voice just i just loved her and you know and and i think she's done well um but i think she you know could have been a big giant superstar and she just hasn't i also think tracy chapman she's another one who i used to bump into her in boston like at the at the um at the atm you know um (laughs) and uh and phenomenal and 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 I don't think she's disappeared. I think she's still working and doing stuff. But I, I think she was another one who just could have been poised for massive superstar popdom, which you know, in all fairness, might not have been at all what they were interested in.
0: Yeah, I actually got to uh, to, to interview her uh, um, a few years ago now, and she's a, she. Well, first of all, she's fabulous and lovely as well as talented. Um, but she's she's still working and still busy. And and it's interesting you like her as well because she sort of fits into that same kind of category to me at least, as Joan Armitrading, who you referenced mm-hmm. a little bit earlier.
1: Yes, yes, I think oh, very much so, right? And they were always sort of quiet. And I think Joan was a little less quiet uh, and under the radar. Uh, but I think Tracy could have gotten the Joan Armitrading. Maybe some people would argue she became more famous than Joan Armitrading in some ways. But I always wondered how much of it was, She, I, I'd never met her, I'd never interviewed her, but she seemed like a quiet soul, you know, mm. and I'm not sure like massive superstardom is what a quiet soul who loves music is really interested in. Yeah,
0: I think you're probably, you're probably right. Um, all right, so we're getting close to the end here. Two two last questions. First of all, do you have a band or an artist who you would describe as a guilty pleasure?
1: Uh, um. When I was in high school, we loved Duran Duran.
0: They're from my hometown. I, I have to, I have to, uh, you know, stick up for Duran Duran.
1: Uh, we just thought Simon Le bon was so hot. And then many years later, I was <laughs> in with Mrs. Le Bon, <laughs> who's also hot. And I was just like, oh my goodness, this is a very attractive family. Um, so, yes, we love Duran Duran, uh, although I, I don't think their music was the greatest and um, probably a Taylor Swift only because I think I'm probably a little too old for all the other Swifties. My daughter loves Taylor Swift. And sure. and so I listen to a ton of Taylor Swift and probably the same with Justin Bieber because my other daughter loves Justin Bieber. And so you just end up having it on all the time. And so I might say, oh my God, I don't even like Justin Bieber, but here I am singing all the songs, <laughs> knowing <laughs> all the words. So yeah, I must really like it.
0: I, I, I think Taylor Swift is, uh, is a wonderful artist and developing into a, a very uh, interesting person outside of uh, music as well.
1: I also, I just, I, I think that's part of why I like her. Uh, and my guilty my guilty my guilt around liking her is only because of my age. I feel like I am just too old for the Taylor Swifties, but um, I just find the way she defends herself and speaks about herself so impressive mm-hmm. you know like and and how she answers things back through her music. I just find her so thoughtful and intelligent. so yeah, in addition to her music, which is very catchy and fun to sing along with.
0: And then we always end with this with this final question. It's uh, it's a Friday afternoon in, in, in New York. You're a little ahead of me. I'm here in Los Angeles. How are you feeling right now?
1: Right this moment, I'm feeling pretty great. It's Friday late afternoon. The day is done. My pandemic puppy is sitting on my bed with me while I record this podcast. And it's kind of a beautiful day. And all next week looks like it's going to be pretty amazing weather-wise. So you know, it's we're in the middle of the the best part of the summer, I think. So it's feeling pretty good.
0: It's been a real pleasure having having a conversation with you, Solidad. Thank you so much.
1: The pleasure was all mine. Nice to talk to you.
0: Thanks. Bye. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.